Well, good morning. Welcome to week two of our Christmas series, Holy Interruptions. Uh, if you were not with us last week, we discovered that even though we like to romanticize that very first Christmas in our heads with that perfectly placed nativity scene, right? Um, we learned last week that that very first Christmas was anything but perfect. Here's the scene. You have two young kids that have fallen in love. They're engaged to be married. Joseph is busy planning and building their forever home. This is the home that Joseph and his beautiful bride, Mary, are going to raise their perfectly behaved children. At least that's what every newlywed couple thinks. They're going to raise their perfectly behaved. Come on, don't judge me. I remember before Andy and I had kids, we sit in church behind couples that had kids, and they'd cry through the whole service. And in my head, and my arrogant to mind, I'm going, our kids will never do that. And then we had kids. In fact, we had four kids. People come up to me today and go, I am so sorry my kid was so loud during church. I'm like, I didn't even hear him. Like, I've just learned to tune it out, apparently, because I had four of my own. And so, uh, yeah, they probably thought they were going to raise these. Well, in, in this case, they were going to raise one perfect kid, but the rest of them had flaws just like the rest of us. And meanwhile, here's Mary. She's probably planning the wedding. She's visiting all the local wedding venues. She's making sure all the invitations are signed and delivered, and she's booking the caterer, and I'm actually making all that up. None of it's in the Bible, but I assume both of them were probably excited about starting their lives together and were making plans accordingly, right? But in one moment, everything changed. In one moment, all their plans were turned upside down. Here's the moment. We read it last week in Luke 1, verses 26 through 28. In 26, it says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, 27, to a virgin named Mary, 28. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you, which meant, congratulations, Mary, consider your plans officially interrupted. Now, we have the luxury of looking back on the story, this very first Christmas story as a whole. And we would agree that even though this first Christmas was an interruption for some, it was a good interruption for all. We see that looking back on the story as a whole. Interruption for some, but a good interruption for all. But those in the story, this is what we talked about last week, those in the middle, in the moment of this first Christmas could not see the good in the moment. All they saw was their lives turned upside down, their plans turned upside down. All they could see in the moment was an interruption to their plans and it left them afraid and it left them confused. And we can relate to that because when things don't go as we have planned, it leaves us afraid and confused. Last week, actually several weeks ago in Matthew, when we talked about interruptions, we defined interruptions as this, an unplanned moment in our lives. 
an unplanned moment in our lives. We all have interruptions, but the question is, how do we know if our interruptions are meant for good? How do we know if our interruptions, our life interruptions are meant for good? Because we can't always see the big picture in the moment. So how do we know? Well, I want to answer that question with another question. It's on the screen. Do you love God? Slowed it down just enough for him to get it up there. Do you love God? I don't mean, do you love Jesus? Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? Rah, rah, rah. I'm not talking about that. I mean, do you really love God? Do you really trust this God with your heart? Do you love submitting your life to his lordship? Do you love living for Jesus? Because Romans 8, 28 says, we know that God causes everything how do we know if it's good or bad? doesn't matter. Everything works together for the good of those who love God. Not this cheery love, but a, a, a life submitted type love. And they're called according to his purpose for them. So how do we know if this interruption in our life is good or not? Are you a Christ follower? Do you love Jesus? Then it's for your good. For with God, there are no unplanned moments. Every step is determined by him. So for the Christ follower, every interruption is an opportunity for good. Look at me. It doesn't mean it's convenient. It doesn't mean that it's comfortable. It doesn't mean that it's not going to get messy. It just means that in our opportunity, it's an opportunity for the holy to step into the unholy. That's what makes interruptions good interruptions. When our interruptions become holy opportunities, that's when God does his best work, and that's when the world sets up and pays attention to the church. So last week, we concluded that we need to be mindful of holy opportunities by constantly surrendering our plans to God's plans and asking him to open our eyes to see him at work in every circumstance around us. After all, we can make our plans, but it's the Lord that determines our steps, amen? Now, this week, I want us to look at interruptions from a little different perspective because usually interruptions are unwanted, unplanned moments. But what about for the moments we actually need an interruption? Maybe your life is going as planned and you still find that your plans are insufficient, your plans have left you wanting more. Or what if your interruption isn't for you at all, but rather for someone beside you, as we'll see today. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Luke chapter two. We're gonna spend our time in Luke chapter two over the next two weeks. I'm gonna skip over the shepherd story. In fact, I'm gonna skip over a lot of the Christmas story and read perhaps a part of the story that you might not even consider to be part of the Christmas story because it happened eight days after his birth. But come on, some of you put your decorations up in October and you don't take them down until January. So eight days after Christmas is still Christmas, all right? Jesus is still a baby, all right? So here's our context today. The nation of Israel has been waiting for an interruption since Genesis chapter three, right? They've been promised that there is one coming that's gonna strike the head of Satan, 
And so they've been waiting for this interruption. God, give us this interruption. Give us the Messiah. Give us the promised one. We've been waiting for the Messiah to show up and rescue us. And in today's text, we're going to look specifically at the lives of two elderly people that I believe represent Israel quite well here. And as we'll soon find out, their stories are connected in many ways to our own stories. I've never preached on these two individuals, and I'm excited to do so today. I want to start reading, though, in verse 21 of chapter 2 of Luke. And here's what it says. Eight days later, meaning eight days after the birth of Jesus... By the way, for those of you that would argue that this isn't a Christmas story, I would argue this is more of a Christmas story than the wise men. Because even though they're in the nativity scene, they're months away from seeing baby Jesus. We're only eight days out here, okay? So here's the context. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel, even before he was conceived. Then it was time for the for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons not really preaching this text, but I find this interesting that even though Jesus is God's son, his family still carries out all of these ceremonies according to the law. Here's why. Jesus was not born into royalty. He didn't come to live above the law. In fact, quite opposite, Jesus set aside his royalty And he took on the servant's flesh and he came and he fulfilled the law perfectly. All of it. I find that remarkable. We keep reading in verse 25. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Now, we don't know much about Simeon, but what we we do know is pretty impressive. It's a pretty impressive resume for the Bible because here's what it says. He was righteous. He was devout. And he was eagerly waiting, just like everybody else, for the Messiah to come and to rescue Israel. And here's another great part of the resume. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Like, if you ever show up in the Bible, this is, this is the description you want, right? Righteous, devout, Spirit of God upon him. And the Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That very day, the Spirit led Simeon to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. Every step determined by the Lord. Do you see that here? There are no coincidences. He's led, Joseph and Mary is led, and their paths cross. And we are not told about this moment unfolding. I wish we had more details, but There had to be a moment here, right? There had to be a moment when Simeon comes in contact with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus that somehow God affirms to Simeon that this is the Messiah. This is the one. Was there a sign? Was there a voice? Was there a light? We don't have any of those details. But we do know that it was affirmed because Simeon, you just don't go around picking up babies. And Simeon went over to Mary and Joseph and he picked up baby Jesus and it says he took the child in his arms and he praised God saying... 
Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised, which in my mind is just a really weird way to start a prayer. Probably freaks Mary and Joseph out a little bit. The stranger comes and grabs your baby and holds him up and goes, oh, thank God, now I can die. And my mind's like, how old do you have to be? That's your prayer. Because you've been promised you're not dying until you see Jesus. And the first thing he prays is, oh, thank God, I can die now. Yeah. But he goes on to say, man, there's so much here. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. No, 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 Simeon, don't you mean Jewish people? No, I mean all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people, Israel. And Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. I pondered on that a little bit this week. Maybe we assume since an angel told Mary she's gonna have a baby and he's gonna be God's son and you're gonna call him Jesus and sure enough it all happened and she knew it was a miraculous marriage or a pregnancy because she was there but they're still hearing things about their son. And they're still being amazed. It's almost like they're, they're learning in the moment. Oh, this is God's son, and we've already been told that he's bringing salvation, but salvation for the world. The glory of all of Israel. I mean, we've heard of these prophecies, but it's still sinking in, right? They're still trying to grasp this moment. They were amazed. And in verse 34, it says, Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to, many, to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. And as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and the sword will pierce your very soul, Mary. Simeon has a whole lot to say in this small little passage, and I want to move through it quite quickly because I don't want to miss anything, but Simeon first asserts that Jesus is going to be the salvation of the world. That their baby boy will be the salvation of the world and that, number two, he would deliver truth not only to those in Israel but also to the Gentiles, which is big news because Israel wasn't looking for a Messiah to the Gentiles. They were looking for a Messiah for Israel. They didn't care if Gentiles were rescued. They just wanted rescuing themselves. But I love this assertion. No, no, no. Not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Three, he says, Jesus would bring glory upon the people of Israel. And then he gets into these prophecies in verse 34 and 35. One, that some of the Jewish people would believe that Jesus is the true Messiah and the consolation of Israel, and some would not. And that would be true for Gentiles too. Some will accept and some will oppose. And my prayer is that every ear here this morning that nobody falls into the category of opposing the salvation of the world, Jesus Christ. The second prophecy he gives is that there will be much opposition to Jesus in the future. We've seen that, by the way, in the past. We've seen that in his very lifetime. He was opposed, and it's really never gone away, has it? And I feel like we've been very blessed to live in a country that Jesus is not a curse word yet, but it seems like every day it's becoming more and more of a name that is opposed. And I believe I'll see it in my lifetime that bearing the name Jesus will cost you more than it's cost us in the past. 
And Simeon prophesies of that. The third thing that he prophesies is that Jesus would suffer and that his suffering would cause Mary much pain personally, that she would watch her very son die for the sins of the world and it would be ugly. It would be gruesome. She wouldn't miss a moment of it. Simeon's preparing her for that moment. Real quick before we move on from Simeon because I don't know if I'll ever preach on him again. There are some observations here that I think are very key for us. Uh, Number one, I, I find it interesting that he was given a promise from the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Don't know of another promise given in all of the scriptures that was given here to Simeon. But just as Simeon anticipated the first arrival of Jesus, I believe we can relate as we wait with great anticipation for Christ's second coming. We can almost put ourselves in his shoes because as he waited for the first coming, we are waiting for the second coming. And this is the interruption that we all should be looking forward to with great anticipation. Everything very broken will once again be declared very good and we too will be rescued from the power and the presence of sin. That's the day we wait for. That's the interruption we long for. Romans says all of creation longs for this interruption. The second thing I noticed from this story is that Simeon was led by the Holy Spirit to be at the right place at the right time to meet Jesus. Do not pass over this because this wasn't some pillar of fire that led Simeon to the temple like you would read in the Old Testament. This would probably look more like a coincidence in Simeon's day. He ends up crossing paths with Mary and Joseph just at the right time. But we know, again, there are no coincidences. And perhaps it looks a lot like our own stories in a way that maybe we have never thought about them before. But all of us who have been saved by God's grace was led by the Spirit to the very place where we would meet our Savior and be changed forever. We might think it just happened, but it didn't. Your steps, just like Simeon's steps, were being determined to the very moment you would come face to face with your Lord and your Savior, and you would embrace or you would oppose. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of your story like that before, that you were led into the very moment of meeting your Savior? We're either being led by our flesh or we're being led by the Spirit every moment of every day. You, where, you are where you are on purpose, wherever you are. You are where you are on purpose, wherever you are. And the third thing is this, and we'll move on. Simeon could now die in peace. I know we made fun of that a moment ago, but he had fulfilled the promise that he would live until he saw the Messiah, and now he could take comfort knowing he could die in peace because God had come. Emmanuel, God was with them. Ultimately, I think what we are most tempted to fear in our lives is death. But because of the birth of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection from the grave, we can all now face death with peace. Peace. That's why on the deathbed of every Christian should be praise, should be singing coming from the room as we become absent from the body and present 
with the Lord. It was part of the angels' choir's declaration that we'll look at next week. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. God gets all of the glory and we get all of the peace in the story. And that's a great exchange. Because what we long for more than anything, whether you realize it or not, is peace. In fact, one of my 2023 resolutions is to live a more peaceful life. Whether in life or death, I want to experience more of God's unexplainable peace in my life. Because I have, I'm aware that I don't always walk in peace. There is fear, and there is anxiety, and there is stress, and there is frustration, and there is, you fill in that blank. But that we become a people of peace, walking. And a peace that is so unexplainable. Philippians 4, chapter, or Philippians chapter 4, I read this passage, to, I preached from it to the teens a, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, and I haven't been able to get it off of my mind, and, and I spoke at a uh, devotion at the junior high last week, and I shared this with them as well, and, and it's, just, it's just been on my mind, and I want to go into 2023 learning how to practice, then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Do, do you see? I want my heart to be guarded by God's peace. I want a peace that exceeds anything that I can understand or explain. But notice the key word there is, then you will. And the answer is, it's one of my favorite verses now. And I promise you, we're gonna, I wanted to preach on it January 1st, but there, we're preaching something else that day. And, but I promise you, this is going to be some scripture that we talk a lot about in 2023. Because he just gave us the promise in seven that our hearts can be guarded. We can't have this peace that is unexplainable. and un, We can't understand it. And then verse six is the key to that. Don't worry about anything. Worry stills our peace, church. I can't preach that. I'm, I worry. I worry. And it steals our peace. But Paul says don't worry about anything. Instead, you've got to replace your worry with what? Prayer. I talked to the teens. I, it says pray about everything. And I want to learn how to practice this. I told my, the teens, I said, I want you to be walking around school and your teachers start worrying that you have an imaginary friend that you're just talking to somebody that's not there all the time because you have just learned to talk to God about everything in every circumstance. You're just walking through the halls. God, thank you for this. What? Man, I'm thank, man. You just whatever comes to your mind, just talk to God about it. Setting, I know you talked about God helping me with this test, right? That's when you're the most spiritual right before a test. <laughs> but what if we learn to pray about everything? Tell God what you need. Just talk to the teens a little bit. What do you need? No, what do you need? What do you need? If you're worrying, if there's something still in your peace, it's because you feel like you need something. And in my experience, this isn't really part of the sermon, but since I can't preach it January 1st. In my experience, the reason why I have so much room for worry is because I don't spend any time communicating to God about the need. I just spend all of my time sitting in my recliner worrying about what am I going to do about the need. I'm really good at about talking to Rick, 
Nobody else. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I put all these plans together. Guess I'll go get another job. Guess I'll go do this. Guess I'll learn how to talk to this person better. Guess I'll ignore this person. Guess I'll, I don't know. You just, you just make your own plans. Make your own plans. And then Paul reminds me, oh, duh. Why don't I take that need to the Lord? Why don't I talk to him about it? He's the only one that really wants to hear about it anyway. We'll talk to other people about it, and they're like, would you just shut up? And God's like, give it to me. Come on, let's talk. And we're like, I forget he's there. Tell God what you need and thank God for what he's done. Man, I'm gonna learn to practice that. And Tony, that's my resolution. If, if we're gonna be people of peace, we've gotta be people that walk around talking to ourselves, even though we're talking to God. <laughs> I mean, telling them everything and thanking him for everything. My goal is to become more of a teller and a thanker. That's how I wrote it here. More of a teller and a thanker. Tell God about my needs and thank God for what he's done so I can experience more of God's peace in my life. And maybe, maybe you'll join me on that journey in 2023. But we have to move on because there's another lady. There's another person, elderly person, and it's a lady. And again, I love this story. It's found in starting in verse 36. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband had died when they'd only been married seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but she stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She just so happened to come along as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. And she talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. So here's Anna. She's proclaiming to anyone that would listen that their wait for the Messiah was over. Verse 39, when Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee, and there Jesus grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. And so here's the two stories, Simeon and Anna, and a few observations that we can take from Anna's story here, and then I want to just give one application to us, is, is the first thing I notice is that Anna lived most of her life as a widow, only married for seven years before death made her a widow, and I feel like her story automatically connects with some of you that have felt that level of brokenness. We have several of our own over the past few years that have been visited by death and a result has given our church family some widows. And some of you can resonate with Anna's story quite well and I hope that somehow her story brings greater hope to your story. The second thing I want us to notice is that in spite of Anna's tragedy, she lived a life dedicated to the Lord and I mean dedicated. She literally lived at the temple. 
It says day and night. She never left as she fulfilled her ministry duties as a prophet. And she spent all of her time praising God and fasting and praying. And I believe here Anna gives us an example that you can turn your tragedy into testimony and that your age should not be an excuse not to live your life dedicated to the Lord. You can never be too young to dedicate your life to the Lord, and you can never be too old to dedicate your life to the Lord. It's his, from first breath to last breath. And I'm not saying you should live here. You can if you want, there's a couch upstairs. We have a kitchen. But we ought to live lives dedicated to the Lord. The third thing I noticed here is that Anna's interruption came through overhearing a conversation. I found that fascinating. There wasn't this big moment for her, at least not here in the text. We could argue that there were many interruptions in her life that led to this moment in her life, which is applicable to us as well. But if she wasn't a widow, she probably isn't at the temple here in Luke chapter 2. And we probably never hear the name Anna. We probably never get to hear this part of her story. But here, there isn't a big moment or there isn't this big interruption. It was just Anna hearing Simeon talking to Joseph and Mary about their baby. And then she just began to testify of all that Everybody that would listen to her, she began to, to declare that God's promise had come. Finally, he was here. And that's it. And maybe that resonated with me because I never really thought about an interruption this way. But come on, you, you've been here where you've overheard a conversation. You, you, you're not even part of the conversation. You just overhear the conversation Perhaps something that was said strikes up something in you and you begin to, to talk to them. I would have never considered that an interruption, but that's exactly what it is. It's an unplanned conversation, right? And that's all we get. That's all we know about the lives of Simeon and Anna, and yet their stories made it into the Bible, Two individual stories, both connected to the Christmas story forever. And the thing I want us to end with this morning is, I believe their stories remind us of something that is true about our own stories. The first thing it reminds us of is that everybody has a story. Everybody has a story, and no matter how significant or insignificant you think your story is, your story matters. Everybody's story matters. And the third thing is this, our stories find their significance in God's grander story. That's not true for just you, that's true for everybody. Everybody has a story, everybody's story matters, and everybody's story finds their significance in God's story. Just like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and the wise men and Simeon and Anna, all of our stories are connected to God's story. We might not see that, but it's true. That means every conversation, 
every circumstance, every context is an opportunity for God to fulfill his mission on earth through our lives. And I wish he did that only through the mountaintop moments. I wish he would only do that when the bank accounts are full and everybody's getting along and there's no problems and everything is going as planned. But God does some of his greatest works in the brokenness of life. And the reason why the church can't be immune from the brokenness is because the world needs to see us respond to the brokenness for the glory of God. Not only is our every step being determined by the Lord, but our every moment is a moment being written into God's story. That's a pretty sobering thought. I mean, we've read, we've, we've read about wicked kings. We've read about righteous kings. We've read about the faith of Simeon and Anna and the knuckleheadness of Peter and the betrayal of Judas. What if your story was in the Bible? How would it read? What would it say? How would it be preached? Every interruption is an opportunity for God to continue telling his story through our lives. His story of rebellion, his story of redemption. And here's the question. Do you want that? Do you want your life to tell God's story? If so, Not only must we welcome interruptions, we might need to invite interruptions. We might need to pray for interruptions. If God does his best work in the unplanned moments, and we really want God to tell his story through us, we might have to pray for more unplanned moments. I don't even want to preach this. Because you know what happens around here, right? When I start preaching things like this. Right? Some of you are scared. I preached one time on don't worry about losing your job, and then we had like six people lose their jobs that week. If there's anything we can learn from the Christmas story, it's that God tells his greatest stories through interruptions. That's what the Christmas story is. What's so amazing about Paul's story is that he was Saul and he was a murderer and God interrupted his life, radically changed his life and he became one of the greatest missionaries if not the greatest missionary church planner the, the world has ever seen. And we love that story because there was an interruption. It would still be a great story, but it, it's, it's more significant that he was, he was on the opposite. He was the other extreme. He went around 
killing Christians and burning down churches. And, and now he's building and planting churches. And, and we love that story because it was an interruption. What if we only... What if we not only looked for God at work through the interruptions, that's what we asked you to do last week, but what if we actually started praying for them? What if we started praying, Father, do something unexpected in my life today. Tell, tell your story through my story for your glory, amen. And Jesus tells us to take, this is how I want to end. Jesus tells us to take the bread and the cup. And did we get the tray for the back? Okay. And he said, I want you to do this. I want you to take of the broken bread and I want you to take of the cup of, of wine or juice. And I want you to do something. I want you to remember the price I paid for your shame and your sin. I want you to remember that it took my death on the cross to experience peace with God. And this morning, we're going to end with communion like we do so often. But as we do communion, I want this to be a moment of invitation from you to God, inviting him to do whatever he needs to do or whatever he wants to do to tell his story to the world through you. As we take of the bread that represents his broken body for our shame, and as we take of the cup that represents his bloodshed for our sins, and because we have peace with God. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. I want us to invite God to do whatever he wants and needs to do to continue telling his story to the world through us. And I want to do so, I'm going to leave this prayer on the screen because I want this to be our prayer as we leave here this week. Father, tell your story through my story for your glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do not want this time of communion to be so consistent that it becomes too familiar to us. But I really do believe Jesus said, as often as you do this, believing that we would often sit at the table and break bread and take of the cup. And God, may this again be a reminder to us of this new covenant that you have brought us through your son, Jesus. 
this new covenant that gives us peace even in death. What a gift. What a gift that we have that you have given us through your son, Jesus. And how selfish it would be for us to take of the bread and to take of the cup and then leave here to live a life as we see fit, telling our story, not really spending much time focusing on you. God, we're sons and daughters, lives submitted to your lordship. And it's not an easy prayer, and it scares me to think what you might do through your people when we pray this prayer. God, do whatever it takes to tell the world of your love, your grace, your patience, goodness good or bad clean or messy tell your story through our stories for your glory amen would you come would you take of communion and gather with some of your family members here that are your brothers and sisters in Christ and And as you take communion together, just, it's a lot easier to go out into this world. It's a lot easier to march into battle with a group. So this is a time for us with one voice to pray that prayer as we take communion together. Lord, I need.